There was a man who was at the airport one day and his flight was delayed. So he went to an overly priced airport shop. All of you know which one I'm talking about. He decided to buy a pack of Oreos. Not a bag of Oreos, just a pack, one of those eight Oreo packages that comes out of a tray. So he bought a pack of Oreos and he goes to his, his gate and he sits there waiting to board. Well, a lady comes and sits right next to him. He didn't think much of it. Uh, but he's there. He pulls out a book to read while he's waiting for his flight. And then a few minutes in, she takes one of his Oreos. <laughs> he can't believe it. Like, she didn't even ask. She didn't even, like, look at him as of a gesture. No, no, no. She just took it. So he's like, oh, okay, this is not cool, but WWJD, like what would Jesus do? You guys remember those braces? Yeah, and so he's like, I'm gonna be nice, I'm gonna let it fly, so he lets it go. Well, a few minutes later, she looks at him this smile, this time and smiles, and she takes another Oreo. He is beside himself, what kind of a human being is this? What planet does she come from? Well, now this time he looks at her sternly as if to claim his territory, and he takes one of his Oreos and said, this is mine, miss, and you can't have it. Well, she takes another one. And he is livid. He is beside himself. And he says, for every one she takes, I'm going to take another one because this is mine. And they go back and forth. She takes one. He takes one until there's one Oreo cookie left. The last Oreo. He's thinking, surely she's got to have some ounce of decency and she will not touch my last Oreo. But to his surprise, again, she takes the last Oreo, she broke it in half, gave one to him, and she ate the other half. Oh, he is so upset. He packs up his stuff and he pounces away. Thankfully, he got called to board the flight. So he gets in in that moment and he begins to unpack his luggage and put away his boarding pass. And lo and behold, to his embarrassing shock, there is his pack of Oreos. He realizes, she's not the cookie thief. I've been the cookie thief. I've been taking her Oreos this whole time. Talk about misunderstanding a situation, huh? Not seeing clearly what's happening. Misunderstanding a context. See, you can have right feelings in a misunderstanding. Like bad information can lead to right and true feelings. And here he is misunderstanding the whole scenario and becoming so angry. Well, today in part four of our sense series, I want, to underst- I want to address a misunderstanding that we may have about the context into which God sends us as a sent people. A common misunderstanding that we may have about the world we live in and the context into which God sends us as his church. And to do so, I want to parse out a little bit of the difference between first century Jerusalem and first century Athens. Jerusalem and Athens. Jerusalem was the center of of Jewish faith and spiritual traditions. The worship of Yahweh was the center of life in Jerusalem. It's where the temple is, where sacrifices are offered and where rabbis are trained and disciples under rabbis are raised. It's all in Jerusalem. People all over Israel, all over the world would come to Jerusalem because you could go to any synagogue and hear the Torah being taught and the Old Testament scriptures being exposited. It's where faith and belief in Yahweh was at the center of culture and of society. That's Jerusalem. 
But Athens was so different. Athens was not the center of religion and faith. Athens was the cultural center of intellect, reason, and human rationale. It's a place where people would bring new philosophies and teachings and embrace relative truth and new ways of thinking. Athens is the birthplace of democracy, philosophies, the science, the arts, architectural, all coming from Athens. It's where amazing world-renowned thinkers like Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, all emerged out of Athens. The best artists and sculptors and scientists from Athens. Athens was very religious as well, but very pluralistic in their religion. So many idols, so many religions you could choose from, so many options where people could choose their own idol, their own God, and incredibly spiritual people, incredibly skeptical as well, pluralistic, intellectual. A place of relative truth that reigned in the culture. And I think a misunderstanding we have in our day and on time So we may believe that our culture is more like Jerusalem when in reality it's more like Athens. It's more and more like Athens and less and less like Jerusalem. Here in DFW and wherever you're joining us from, wherever you might be, most likely your context of life and ministry and church, all it's more like Athens today than it is like Jerusalem. Not to say that faith and reason cannot intersect, they absolutely do, but we today in our culture at large, most people operate not in a biblical framework, but we operate through intellect and reason and rationale and our human truth and human reasoning and human rationale has become the primary driving force of culture and belief. I wish we lived in Jerusalem culture today, but today most likely, What we're seeing is not the Christian faith at the center of our culture, but human reasoning, rationale. It's an Athens kind of world. Most of the evangelistic tools that that we have and we've used as churches and individuals, it was mostly developed in the middle of the 20th century. Where in America, it was more like a Jerusalem culture. People believed in God, or at least they had grown up going to church uh, they thought positively about Christians and church. They, they knew that there was perhaps most likely some kind of afterlife out there. They had heard the gospel in some form. And even non-believers then were more biblically literate than believers today. It was a Jerusalem culture. But today, the world isn't quite like that. Most people don't have an existing category for the gospel so skeptical, so trusting in our own wisdom and intellect. That's the culture of today. So meaning, we don't just need a Jerusalem-sent strategy. We need an Athens-sent strategy. So today we're going to go to Athens in Acts chapter 17. A culture immersed in pluralistic thinking, intellect, philosophy, reason, A culture that is a melting pot of many cultures and beliefs and gods. Spiritual, but afar from Jesus. And here in Athens, we will find the Apostle Paul being sent to Athens. But ironically, Paul had not planned to go to Athens. This is his second missionary journey. Athens was not on the map of where he was going to go. He goes to Thessalonica and preaches the gospel. And there a riot breaks out. And with the help of some of his friends, they help him escape Thessalonica, and they send him to Berea. 
And there he finds a devoted group of people investigating the scriptures. And so he begins to teach them about Jesus as being the Messiah. And things are going really good in Berea until some of the leaders from Thessalonica come to Berea and cause issues again. And now the believers in Berea escort Paul and says, Paul, you got to get out of here. You got to go to some place that's safe for a little while. So go to Athens. And so they sent him to Athens until the rest of the team arrives. It's just supposed to be a holding pattern, a holding place there in Athens. But in that moment that was unprepared, that was not planned for, Paul has one of the most prolific sent moments recorded in all of the book of Acts. You know what that tells me? We don't just have sent moments when we're prepared and when we've planned. No, no, no. Sent moments happen through the surprises of our life. Sent moments happen through the unplanned moments of our life. And in fact, God may bring the greatest intervention in somebody else's life through you in the midst of one of your greatest interruptions in your life. God may choose to intervene in somebody else's life through a major interruption in your life, through a crisis, through a diagnosis, through a failure, through things you didn't plan for. That could actually be the orchestration of an incredible sent moment where God uses you and sends you to people that you had not planned or prepared for. So here is Paul finding himself in Athens. And the story picks up in Acts 17, verse 16. While Paul was waiting for them, the rest of his missionary team in Athens, he was deeply distressed when he saw that the city was full of idols. Here Paul is in a new town. Perhaps he had heard of, I'm sure he had heard of Athens, the Roman citizen, because Athens is a center of culture and intellect and philosophy. And most people, when they get to Athens, they would be so strikingly captivated by the beauty, the history, the architecture, the literature of Athens. But when Paul gets to Athens, he sees the whole city through the eyes of Jesus that we talked about last week. He sees Athens as a city full of idols. It's been said about Athens that you could almost have a yellow page book. A yellow page for the idols of Athens. It would be easier to find an idol in Athens before you found a person in Athens. Here Paul looks at the scape of the city. It's full of idols. Can I tell you there are idols in our day too? In our city? In our communities? Maybe not physical shrines or statues. But an idol essentially is good or bad things that have now become the ultimate devotion of your life. Good or bad things that have now become the ultimate devotion of your life. That is an idol. It was G.K. Chesterton who said, when man ceases to worship God, it's not that he worships nothing, but that he worships everything. We cease to give God worship. It's not that we worship nothing. No, no, no. We find new things. We find everything else to worship, good or bad things that have now become the ultimate devotion in our life. It could be success, career, education, money. It could be food. It could be pleasure. It could be sex. It could be titles. It could be your spouse, family members, kids, an idea, a dream that has now become the ultimate priority and the ultimate decision of your life or the devotion of your life. It is an idol. And Paul here sees a city full of idols. And let me tell you, I think beneath so many of the brokenness, so much of the injustice and the brokenness of our world is a worship problem. 
where we've chosen to displace God from the center of our heart, the soul of our life, and have replaced him with something or someone else. It's a worship problem. Paul sees Athens as full of idols. And what does he do? He feels it. He's deeply distressed. He doesn't just see, he feels the heart of God for his city, for this city of Athens, deeply distressed. And the word distressed in the Greek is from where we get the English word paroxysm. Paroxysm, it's where spasm and outburst comes out of. It's this emotional outburst or spasm of passion, distress, zeal that takes over Paul. Deep within him, he is deeply distressed. It's a word in the Old Testament that is used of God when God is provoked to anger and holy indignation when Israelites ran after idols. Because God loves these people. He has chosen these people. He has a holy zeal for them. And now they've neglected him, abandoned him. And God is provoked with holy, compassionate, loving indignation. And here Paul feels the same because he feels the heart of God. He's three. He sees this city through the mind of Christ, a city full of idols, and feels the distress that comes with it. When we started this series, we said that most often we don't share the gospel not because we don't know how to, but because we don't want to. We don't want to. Well, we don't feel this distress quite enough. We numb it. We avoid it. We don't quite feel this anguish inside of us. Pastor Timothy Keller, Tim Keller, he pastors in New York City. And the Sunday after 9-11, 2001, September 11th, 2001, that Sunday was September 16th. And he preached a sermon in New York City in Manhattan where his church is. His church was located just five miles north of the World Trade Center. And that Sunday, people came to church. And usually there was about 2,800 people that attend his services, that church. Well, that Sunday there was 5,300 people that came to church. And you could still on that Sunday morning smell the burning buildings. You could still see rescue operations of first responders looking for family members and lives and loved ones searching for their family friends and family members and friends. So in this service, the Sunday after 9-11, Tim Keller spoke from John 11, where there is Jesus at the tomb of Lazarus. And he spoke a message entitled, Truth, Tears, Anger, and Grace. Truth, tears, anger, and grace. And he was looking at how Jesus moves through the ruins of that story, the ruins of hopes and dreams and the lack of life, the stench of death, and how Jesus moves through truth, tears, anger, and grace. Jesus wields with Martha truth when he says to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though they die, they will surely live. That is the incredible, absolute truth of who Jesus is. But with Mary, when he sees Mary approaching, what does he do? He weeps. He has tears and he cries. And then he points his anger, not at people, but at the tomb itself. At death itself. And he robs the grave, the tomb, and death of its power when he raises Lazarus to life. And then he extends grace to everybody. Truth, tears, anger, and grace. Keller said it like this, that the ministry of truth without tears isn't Jesus. 
The ministry of truth without tears is actually not like Christ because Jesus didn't show up in that moment, in that scene to declare truth. No, he came and he wept because he cared. He was distressed about what he saw. He was deeply moved, the Bible says, about what he saw in that moment. Yes, truthful, but also tears. And as a people sent to the Athens of our lives, we must have a ministry of truth and a ministry of tears, a ministry of deep, unchanging conviction and a ministry of deep compassion, a ministry that's bold and gentle at the same time, truth and tears. And this is what Paul sees. He sees a city of idols and he is moved with deep emotion, compassion. He is provoked from distress that he sees. So how does he now engage in ministry in Athens? Look at verse 17. The writer says, Luke says, so he argued in the synagogue with the Jews. No, that's not what he did, huh? He wrote an angry Facebook post about those in the synagogue. No. <laughs> he stood there with a sign informing people that they're all going to hell at the synagogue. No, that's not what he did either, huh? He reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with those who worship God as well as in the marketplace every day with those who happen to be there. Some of them, Epicurean and Stoic philosophers, also debated with him. Some said, what is this ignorant show-off trying to say? Others replied, he seems to be a preacher of foreign deities, plural deities, because he was telling them the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. They're so confused. There's two gods, Jesus and the resurrection that Paul is talking about. So what does Paul do as he sees a city full of idols? He doesn't go to cause a riot. He goes to reason with them. To reason with the Jews that were there first, and then the marketplace, and then the philosophers. Three groups of people, Jews, the marketplace people, and philosophers. He goes to the Jews first and begins to reason with them about who Jesus was. Now, I think it's fascinating. There's also Jews in Jerusalem, but the Jews here were incredibly intellectual and philosophical. See, Peter could stand up in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost, preach one sermon, and 3,000 people came to Christ. That's Jerusalem culture. But Paul here is with the same Jews, or same category of people, proclaiming the same Jesus by the power of the same Spirit. But this isn't a monologue, it's a dialogue. It's not him preaching at them, it's him reasoning back and forth, back and forth. As we'll find out later, while 3,000 came to Christ in Jerusalem, only a handful through Paul came to Christ in Athens. So he is reasoning with the Jews in Jerusalem, but he doesn't say in, I'm sorry, he's reasoning in the synagogue, but he doesn't stay in the synagogue. What does he do? Every day he goes to the marketplace. He didn't wait in the synagogue for all the lost people of Athens to come to him in the synagogue. He met people where they were in the marketplace. He saw himself as a sent individual, though he's not supposed to be here. This is just a temporary waiting spot. He doesn't avoid this moment. He steps right into the sent moment and goes to the marketplace where people are. In Jerusalem, he probably could have stayed in the synagogue, but here... In Athens, you need an everyday church living out an everyday mission, meeting people where they are. It's a marketplace kind of ministry. In Jerusalem, the strategy of let's build it and they'll come used to work. It doesn't anymore. 
We've got to be set. We've got to be mobilized to meet people at the marketplaces of our society. That could be the workplace. That could be the grocery store. It could be the gym. It could be wherever people are on a regular basis to say, God, send us every day with an everyday message and mission to meet people where they are. It's a marketplace sent Athens strategy. And there at the marketplace, Paul comes across two groups of philosophers, the Epicurean philosophers and the Stoic philosophers. This is two prevailing thought processes or philosophies in ancient Athens, Epicurean and Stoic. The Epicureans were materialist, meaning they believed that all that mattered was the material world. Matter only mattered. The physical world only mattered. They, they believed in the gods, but they found the gods to be aloof and distant, not engaged with the world. So they said, hey, the greatest goal of your life is to seek God pleasure. If it feels good, do it. There's no God that's going to hold us accountable. Live your feelings. Follow them. This is the Epicurean way of life. Then there are the Stoics. The Stoics were not materialists. They were pantheists. And they saw God in everything. They said this principle, this higher being of God or the gods is infused in all of life. The Stoics did not see a beginning point to creation or an ending point. They just saw life as a continuous cycle of chaos and order, chaos and order. And the way they thought to break out of the chaos was to pursue human intellect and reason. That was salvation. That was the greatest goal. So two philosophies, a materialist worldview and a pantheist worldview, both equally hopeless and without meaning. So what does Paul do? He enters a conversation. But with Jews, with the marketplace people, and with these philosophers, he reasoned and they debated. He reasoned and they debated. It's a conversation. It's not an argument. It's a dialogue. It's Paul listening. Perhaps I think Paul was not just giving good answers. He was asking good questions. Paul was genuinely curious about what they thought and what they believed and what they trusted in. In the following verses, we're going to read one of the most prolific contextual presentations of the gospel that he gives in Athens. But I don't think all that Paul includes about the culture and the philosophy of Athens was pre-learned. Because he had not planned on being in Athens. I think the message he gives is formed by many, many days of dialogue with the people in Athens. He was gathering information. He genuinely was curious about who they were. He was asking more questions and giving good answers. In fact, they say, who is this ignorant, foolish babbler? And if you know anything about the writing of Paul, he is so coherent. He's not babbling. He's got a logical flow in his thought. And the word there is, who is this seed picker? <laughs> seed picker. Because he was asking a lot of questions and dropping hints and truths here and there. Enough to keep the conversation going. He's dialoguing, genuinely curious. And that took curiosity and courage. Every day he reasoned. As they debated, he reasoned. So what happens after multiple several days of back and forth with Jews and philosophers, Epicureans and Stoics, they took him and brought him to the Areopagus and said, may we learn about this new teaching you are presenting? Because what you say sounds strange to us. I'm sure you've probably heard that before from somebody. What you say sounds pretty strange and we want to know what these things mean. 
Now all the Athenians and the foreigners residing there spent their time on nothing else but the telling or hearing of something new. Imagine that. That's Twitter before Twitter. That's, you know, whatever your truth is presented, we'll, we'll, we'll weigh it out. So after many days of reasoning back and forth with Jews and philosophers, he gets invited to the Areopagus. It's his public space, his public square, where new thoughts and philosophies could be presented. There would be an actual council, a governing council, that would receive and hear what's being presented here. And people would spend hours presenting an idea. Here's a picture of the Areopagus. It's on the bottom here, just a little hill. And this is the highest point of Athens. This on the top is the Parthenon temple devoted to their deity or goddess, Athena. And usually in Greece, the highest points of the city were devoted to being a temple. But right below that is the Areopagus. It's where people came to hear truth and philosophies and new things were presented. That's one view of the Areopagus. But notice the second picture of what the Areopagus looks out towards, the rest of the city. More temples, homes, families, and people. So Paul is literally standing in front of this massive temple to Athena and looking at more idols than temples and people and homes where people live, the neighborhoods of that town. And looking at what he sees and having heard all that he had in this back and forth conversation with philosophers and Jews, he now presents the gospel to them in a way that makes sense to them. Because he was curious and courageous, he could now explain the gospel in a category in which they could hear and understand. And notice this amazing message that he gives to the people of Athens. Verse 22. So Paul stood in the middle of the Areopagus and said, people of Athens... I see, and he's physically see. I see that you are extremely religious in every respect. For as I was passing through and observing the objects of your worship, I even found an altar on which was inscribed to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, he is Lord of heaven and earth. And he does not live in shrines made by hands. Neither is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. Since he himself gives everyone life and breath and all things. For one man he has made every nationality to live over the whole earth. And has determined their appointed times and the boundaries of where they live. He did this so that they might seek God and perhaps they might reach out and find him. Though he is not far from each one of us. Paul goes on to say, for in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said. For we are also his offspring. Since then we are God's offspring. We shouldn't think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone. An image fashioned by human art and imagination. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God now commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he has set a day when he is going to judge the world in righteousness by the man he has appointed. He has provided proof of this to everyone 
by raising him from the dead. This is the speech that Paul gives at the center of culture, intellect, and human reason at the Areopagus in Athens. Notice when Paul begins his speech, he doesn't begin with condemnation and judgment. He begins with connection. He says, people of Athens, you can almost hear his love and passion for them, people of Athens. He actually begins with a compliment. He honors something in them. He says, uh, just from what I've seen and observed, you're so devoted, so religious. You want to know the truth, don't you? You, you want to worship God, don't you? He's establishing a common ground, a common place to start. What he's saying is, you and I, we want the same thing. We have at the depths of our soul the same desire to know God, to know truth, to find him. We're actually more alike than you think. He's setting a common starting place. And after he wins their attention and this connection he makes, and now he goes into this speech, into the message of the gospel. We don't have time to unpack all that's beautifully wrapped into this message, but here's a quick outline of what we just read. Paul's message here at the Areopagus begins with God as the creator. God is the creator. Paul, as he enters this pluralistic, intellectual, reasoning community, he presents the grand story of God. He begins from the very beginning. He starts at the very beginning of God being the creator. To the Epicureans who thought God was disconnected, Paul is saying, no, 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 there is an involved God who made the world. And one day, you will be accountable to this creator God. To the Stoics who thought that the creator and the creation were all mixed into one, Paul says, no, 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 there is a distinct creator that's different than his creation. He is bigger, he is greater than his own creation. Paul begins not with sin, he begins at creation. And today, as we bring the gospel to people, the starting place isn't you're a sinner and need a savior. The starting place isn't here's how you've broken the Ten Commandments and why you need a savior. The starting place is the beginning of scripture, Genesis 1, not Genesis 2. It's God at creation making a perfect world, designing a perfect life, God forming humanity in his perfect image. That's where we start. Because people lack the context of sin and the gospel if we don't present the scripture in this grand story and nature beginning with an almighty creator. So as we engage in conversation, the starting place is a common place of knowing we live in a creation, don't we? So let's talk about a creator. Paul begins at creator. And then Paul says God is not just creator, he is the sustainer of life. He gives breath to every human being, including you and I. He gives life to you and I. He is a sustainer of all life. He is not aloof. He is not distant. He is so engaged. He is so involved with the world. As creator, he made the world. And by the way, you cannot cage up a creator God. He doesn't live in tents or shrines or temples. You put all the temples together in the world. He does not live in them because he is greater than anything that our human hands could ever construct. 
He is creator God. He is that powerful and awesome, but he's not some great God out there. He is involved as he gives you your own very breath. And it is this God that keeps the world spinning and our hearts beating at the same time. He is a sustainer of life. And then Paul says, not only is he a sustainer, he is a source of life. God is creator, sustainer, and he is the source. From God, all things were created. By God, all things were created. From God came the one man, and out of that one man came every nationality, every family. And he looks at all these hundreds of families in Athens. God created one man. Through him, everyone was born. He is the source of all things. To the Stoics who are pantheists, Paul is saying, God is not in everything, but everything is in God. God is not in everything, but everything is in God. That's why Paul says, in him we move. In him we breathe. In him we live. He is far more expensive than we can ever imagine. And he holds all of life together in the palm of his mighty hand. He is creator, sustainer, and the source. And then Paul would say, God is knowable. He is not a distant God that you cannot know. He is knowable. As he was establishing common ground and a starting place, he pointed to the inscription that read, an unknown God. And he said, hey, I noticed this unknown God that you worship. But actually, that came in 6th century BC when a massive plague struck Athens. To try and find relief from this plague, the people of Athens would offer gods to all of the known gods. They would offer animals and sacrifices to the known gods and nothing worked. So they said, well, there must be an unknowable God out there somewhere. Let's build up temples and idols to this unknown God and offer him sacrifices. So maybe this unknown God will bring relief. And ever since then, people were worshiping an unknown God. So Paul comes and tells them, can I tell you something better than an unknown God? There is a knowable God. And I've come to introduce you to him. I've come to tell you about some, about the God of the universe, the creator, sustainer, and source of all things that you can actually have a relationship with. And here in verse 27, I think Paul introduces the concept of sin and the fall. Because Paul says, God set the boundaries and times where we will live so that humanity, people would seek out for him and find him and reach him, though he is not far. What Paul is saying is something has happened in this perfectly created world that has drawn a distance between mankind and God. We want to find him, but we're reaching out trying to find him because something is hindering us from finding God. And the word that Paul uses there for reach out or find him was a common word in the Greek that Homer used in one of his famous poems about Odysseus. Here's how the poem meant. How the poem went, Odysseus and his men are captured by a giant one-eyed uh, cyclops. I know, it's going to be interesting, this poem. A giant one-eyed cyclops captures Odysseus and his men. Well, Odysseus has an idea. He gets the cyclops drunk, and then he stabs him with a sharp stake so that he cannot see. I told you, it was a twist of the story. He gets him drunk and then blind. Okay, and as this giant one-eyed cyclops is blind, Odysseus and his men now are trying to leave the cave that the cyclops brought them into. And the cyclops, he cannot see, he's blind, but he hears them running, he knows that they're trying to leave, so he's feeling around for them. 
He's trying to find where they are. He, he knows they're there, but he can't accurately pinpoint. He can't touch them. He can't bring them in. So it's this image of him reaching out, trying to find, trying to seek where they are. And Paul is saying to them, you're reaching out, you're searching, you're curious, but something has blinded you from seeing the truth of who God is. It's sin that has blinded us from the reality of who he is. So creation and general revelation gives us a sense that there is something out there. There must be a God who made everything. There must be an intelligent designer. I, I, I got to put the facts together and see there's somebody out there. So I'm feeling out for him. I'm trying to find him. But I'm blinded from seeing who he truly is. You might have never thought yourself as this, but apart from Christ, we are a giant one-eyed cyclops who can't even see. But grace opens our eyes. And the gospel brings general revelation into a specific personal person. It says Jesus is the Savior. He is the creator. And because of the grace of God that opens our eyes, we go from being unseeing cyclopses to seeing children who see him as he is. Who reach out for him. Grace opens our eyes and we find him. Paul is saying, you've been for centuries as a center of intellect and reason, searching, curious, and wondering, but can I tell you who the snowable God is? Can I introduce you to the grace that's going to open your eyes so that you can see him for who he is? He is creator, sustainer, source, and knowable. And finally, Paul would say to them that he is savior and judge. God is savior and judge. Paul says earlier that we were coming from one man, Adam. But now he says, God has appointed another one man, the Lord Jesus. And God has appointed that through this one man, the whole world would be righteously judged. But right now, we have the opportunity to repent. And if we place our faith and trust in this one man, the Lord Jesus, he will no longer be our judge, he'll be our savior. So by believing in him, a judge becomes a savior. And by not believing in him, he remains a judge. And there is a day of judgment, Paul says, that's coming to the world. I often leave that out sometimes, don't we? But Paul says God is going to bring judgment to the world. But you have the opportunity to see him as savior. And the proof that he is judge and savior is that he has been raised from the dead. The Father has vindicated him, raised him from the dead. And he invites people to a decisive response. So into this multi-pluralistic, diverse, intellectual, skeptical community, here is how Paul introduces the story of God leading to Jesus. In the synagogue, he would have begun with the scriptures and with Abraham, but now he begins with creation. But all of it leads to Jesus. Wherever you begin, it ends to Je it leads to Jesus as the ultimate hope of the universe. God is creator, sustainer, source, knowable, knowable, and he is our savior if we know him, or he is our judge if we don't. Now, this is an amazing sermon, and you would think the entire town of Athens would have come to Christ. But notice how the city responds, how those listening to Paul responds to this amazing message. Verse 32 says, and when they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some began to ridicule him. But others said, we'd like to hear from you again about this. 
So Paul left their presence. However, some people joined him and believed, including Dionysius, the the Areopagite, a woman named Demaris, and others with them. Three responses that Paul receives in an intellectual reasoning community that we too will receive. Some ridiculed, some were more curious, and some believed. Ridicule, curiosity, and belief. Some said, you're crazy, we're not buying this. They stayed blind. Others said, we want to know more. Can we get some coffee and falafel and euros? We want to hear you more about this. We're interested. And others, including one of the men from the Areopagite council, Dionysius says, we believe. And women and others joined Paul and became Christ followers. You and I will receive the same responses in our communities, in our culture. It's the same spirit I got working, same gospel. But in an Athens culture, this is a response we can expect. So as we come to an end, I'm so out of time. Here's what I've already told you. I want to just give you as one list of what it means to be sent to Athens. What it means to be a follower of Jesus sent to Athens. It means that we must see and feel what Jesus sees and feels. Recognizing the idols of our day. Feeling the distress of what he feels. Second of all, we must dialogue and not argue. We must enter into a conversation. Not argument, but dialogue. Reasoning with people. And you know what's so critical in that? Genuine curiosity. Real, authentic curiosity. I want to know what people trust in around me. I want to know what my coworkers actually... I want to listen to their stories. I want to be so curious about who they are and what they've gone through that actually I value them for who they are. Genuine curiosity. See, the best sent moments may not be when you have all the answers, but the best sent moments are when you have all the right questions. And you come armed with the right questions out of a genuine curiosity of, I really want to know your story and value you as a human being engaged, present with you. I'm curious about your story and what you trust and believe in. This is what Paul did in our sent groups this week. We're going to go through four questions about how we can engage genuinely being curious about people. It's amazing that Paul lived many days curious about them. At the end of his address, they became curious about him. We want to know more because curiosity begets curiosity. Honor begets honor. Respect begets Respect. He was curious, and now the whole town is curious. Going on, we must value common starting places. What is it that we have in common? Where do we find links in our story, bridges to the gospel, valuing, honoring common starting places? Next, we must share the grand story of God. We must begin with creation, the story of God, and invite people into this amazing narrative of who God is. Next, we must contextualize the uncompromising message of Jesus. Contextualize the uncompromising message of Jesus. To contextualize simply means that you find a point of contact, that's the commonplace, that will then lead you to a point of conflict. Not conflict with them, but internal conflict in them that only Jesus can solve. A point of contact that leads to an inner conflict to which Jesus is the only answer. 
We have an uncompromising message, but we must find ways to contextualize this to our neighbors and coworkers. And lastly, we can expect what Paul received, ridicule, curiosity, and belief.